Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. This month, families are preparing for back to school, including buying supplies for traditional subjects like writing and math. But is your student taking a computer science course? Some schools offer classes in coding. Lieutenant Governor Bysowitz told the Merit and Record Journal nearly 9 out of 10 of the state's high school students attend schools that offer computer science as an elective, but only 5% of high school students actually enroll in these foundational classes. Now, Ed Week reports while access to computer science has increased, not all students are offered foundational computer science. Coming up where we live, we talk to a computer science teacher at Newtown High School who helps lead the annual Lieutenant Governor's Coding for Good Computing Challenge, and we meet one of her student participants. The statewide coding competition is part of an effort to close gender and pay gaps and attract more women to science, technology, engineering, and mathematics fields. The nonprofit Girls Who Code finds only one quarter of computer scientists are women. That conversation later. Now you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My first guest is a parent who turned her interest to find a computer science after-school program for her child into opening three coder schools in Connecticut. On Zoom with us is Vishali Shah, owner of the Coder School in Farmington and Glastonbury, and soon in Cheshire, Connecticut. Vishali, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. I'm excited to be here. Now, Hartford Business Journal reported you're the first person in Connecticut to open up a coding for kids after-school and summer camp program. So tell us more about how you started looking into this. So we stumbled upon it through a Google search. So my husband, at the time my son was three years old, and my husband was looking for after-school enrichment activities for him, more STEM-related, like, you know, Legos and robotics and things like that. And he um, came upon coding for kids. And he works with developers. He works for Disney and and he knew exactly what that meant. And he says out, out loud to me, oh, I found something coding for kids. And to me, I, you know, I was just like, it's, we already have a hard time teaching adults how to code. How could we possibly teach kids? So we looked more and more into it and we're like, wow, this is amazing. There's definitely a gap to have that foundational you know, coding experience while students are younger before they get to high school. So yeah, and we went with it. Um, it's a franchise from Palo Alto, California. We flew out there, we we checked out the schools and we loved it. So we went ahead and we opened our first coder school in 2018 in Farmington. So what were your expectations when you opened that first location uh, in Farmington, Vishali? So our expectations, we we knew that, you know, with technology and how fast it moves and how up and coming it is, we knew eventually it was going to, you know, do well. But in the beginning, we didn't we, we didn't know what to expect. And we were kind of expecting it to kind of slowly ramp up. 
um, yeah, so those are our expectations. Mm. So tell us about the kids, the parents you heard from. And when we think about uh, the students who are, are taking uh, courses at the Coder School today, are they breaking through this generalization of the type of student who codes or even wants to learn? <laughs> they, they definitely are. I mean, we have we have all kinds of students, you know, that come in and that want to learn. Um, we have the, the students that, you know, only want to do coding and that's their hobby. We have the students that, you know, do all kinds of activities and then they do coding on the side. So, um, you know, the parents, the parents really love it. They appreciate it. Some parents will tell me this is the only thing their child likes to do for after school activities. Um, so they're very grateful that, you know, they're able to come to the quarter school to do coding. Mm -hmm. But what's their, I guess, motivation uh, beyond, you know, having fun, too? And when we think about, you know, even your your husband, who you mentioned, uh, works with developers. And so are these parents and kids that are thinking about, you know, STEM as a career, or are they just naturally gravitating uh, towards this, Vashali? So it's a little bit of both. Um, we definitely have, you know, parents that want to sign their kids up so they're exposed to it and in the hopes they like it and maybe make a career out of it. Then we have the kids who, you know, they want to come in and they say, I want to go to MIT and I want to become a developer. So they're kind of already set and they already know what they want to do. So it's definitely um, different motivations, but it's all, you know, it's all tech oriented and you have the kids who just want to come in and they want to make video games. You know, they, they play video games at home, so they kind of want to make their own custom video game. Mm. And what are they learning in terms of, you know, the ages that your coder schools are serving, the, the programs? Um, is it basic coding? And then when we think about older kids, are they interested in robotics? Yeah, yeah. So we start at seven. Seven is uh, the youngest age that we start. And at that age, you know, students can't really type. So at that age, they're doing block coding, um, which really builds like the foundations and the logic for typed coding, you know, like Java or Python, some of the harder languages. Um, and then the older students, we focus more on Java and just helping them do well in their computer science classes in high school and helping them pass their computer science exams because those students are kind of set. They they do want to do computer science and they want to get into, you know, a good college where they can become a developer. And robotics is definitely really big. We have a lot of students who come in and they want to do robotics. Um, we've had some really cool projects that students have made. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of a lot of different things um, with the younger kids, you know, it's more of just getting them used to the computer and just getting them comfortable with it before they actually do start doing the harder languages. You're hearing Vishali Shah here on Where We Live, owner of the Coder School in Farmington, Glastonbury, and soon to open in Cheshire, Connecticut. Again, the Coder School are after-school and summer camp programs for kids who are interested in coding. Uh, when you opened in 2018 in Farmington, I think a year later, you opened in Glastonbury. So I'm assuming you were hearing from a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, you know, like you said in the beginning, we, we didn't know what to expect and we had a, a great turnout. We had a, a, you know, a great response from the community in Farmington. And we were like, OK, this is definitely a need. Uh, kids want to do coding. It's they're out there. So um, we had a lot of kids come from the Glastonbury area and they were, you know, coming through Hartford um, to get to Farmington. So we figured, you know, there's definitely a need in that area as well. So yes, we opened up the Glastonbury School. It was actually, it, both the schools opened up within a year. So about, it was 11 months later, we opened up the Glastonbury School. Mm -hmm. And when will you be opening the Cheshire location, Vishali? We are hoping for mid to late October. 
Um, so yeah, hopefully at that time, we're just not sure with the, you know, supply chain and just, you know, some delays with that thing, with those kind of things. But um, we are hoping um, mid to late October. And you're collaborating with the local school districts? Yes, we are. So Farmington Public Schools, Glastonbury Public Schools, they, um, we will offer programs and classes for them and they come to our school to do the coding. Um, so, you know, everyone in the public school districts, they have information that's sent out to them, to the parents. And our school is listed on there um, with some programs that they can enroll in through their schools. But they do come to our schools to do the coding. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live, especially if you have a student that's uh, taking computer science courses, or if uh, you or someone in your family, you know, is interested or has learned about coding, you know, what your motivations uh, were. Again, our number, 888-720-9677. Earlier, it was interesting, Michelle, you mentioned that when you were thinking about opening the coder schools for kids, you know, it's it can be hard for adults to learn to code and how to make that accessible to this population, too. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, yeah, it's definitely harder for adults. I think it's because, you know, as we're in school, we, we're not exposed to it, especially at such a young age of seven. Um, so, you know, for the kids that are coming now to the coder school, they've, they've started at such a young age that by the time they reach high school or, you know, even when they're adults, they should be p- able to pick up, you know, the coding much faster. I always like to explain to the parents that are not familiar with coding or technology. It's just like learning a language, you know, like learning French or Spanish. Uh, when you start at a young age, it comes faster and um, quicker and you're able to grasp it. And even if you don't, like let's say you do coding for a few years and then you don't do it, later on um, you will pick it up pretty quickly because you had done it when you were younger. Mm. Um, given what you just shared, uh, when you think about you know long-term goals, uh, um, you know, trying to um, have a, a child be interested in a career in STEM. So this idea of learning to code, like what kind of jobs are we talking about here? So almost anything and everything. I mean, every you know, everyone knows that works, you know, in the real world. Their computers drive everything, you know, in, in hospitals, you know, engineering with cars, just anything, anything we touch on a daily basis, our phones, you know, our emails, our smartwatches, everything is driven by computers so you can really get a job anywhere because for all the software to work they need developers and coders to make that software and then we think about the tech jobs and the the tech industry the importance of gender diversity i'm wondering what you what you have observed yeah so with gender and uh girls in technology and girls in stem so when we first opened our uh coder school there was a lot of um male applicants that we were getting and and it was mostly males and now just recently there's been a lot of females that have been applying so just you know in applying for instructor positions we see more girls also at the school there's definitely more girls that are being enrolled we always do a stat every month to see you know how many boys we have at the school versus how many girls and when we first opened it was like 20% to 80% and now it's more like 40% to 60% so it's definitely starting to level out with um girls coming in and wanting to do coding and learning more about the STEM options. Well, that's good to hear. And I, I'm curious, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, can you tell us, you know, how your how your son is doing with coding today? 
<laughs> so he, he's he's doing good. He started um, we, when we first opened the school. He was only three, so he was he was too young to start. But um, he's eight now, so he's definitely had a few different. He's done the block coding. Um, there's always new platforms coming out, like Nintendo Switch. You know, a lot of the kids play games on their Switch. That just came out with a coding platform. So he's done those two platforms. He's done the block coding and also the Nintendo Switch coding. One of your instructors at the Coder School is with us as well on Zoom, Jenna Roman. Jenna, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So you were a coordinator for the company, then you started coding and then teaching. So tell us about your transition. <laughs> so yeah, so I had applied to be a school coordinator, um, and then little did I know that I would end up learning how to code. Um, it is, it was amazing working there. You know, uh, being around the kids and just. I just felt like, you know, watching them code, I was just like, I really want to learn how to do this because these kids are so smart in how they're learning and everything. Um, so I ended up getting into it. I started, you know, watching over the classes more, seeing if, you know, I can make something. Um, and then afterwards, once I started to get the hang of, you know, doing certain stuff like on Scratch, which is block coding, and then a, a tiny bit of Python, you know, I'm not the best at that, which is typed coding. Um, I started to, you know, offer to teach classes. And then uh, we also got into Minecraft, which is absolutely amazing, which kids love Minecraft. And they ended up coming out with, you know, coding in Minecraft. So that was also a pretty big thing. And I, I caught on to that pretty quickly because I, I have played Minecraft before when I was younger. <laughs> and so you've enjoyed working with younger kids and seeing how, uh, you know, their, their brains are sponges. They're able to learn this and do it well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing, and especially when kids like uh, in our two to one code coaching program when they finally think of something that they want to make and then you're able to help them achieve whether that be that game or like a website uh they're really excited with what they end up making especially like towards the end of the day when their parents come they're like mom or dad please come look at what i did and it's, it's really amazing and what led you to this jenna personally well Honestly, I had saw some coding in college. So when I had went through college, I had no idea what this was. Uh, and I was introduced to it. And then all of a sudden, now having a job at a coding school where they teach kids so early, I was like, wow, I wish I would have learned this in high school because I ended up having a project in high school where I wanted to make an app and I had no idea about coding. So I couldn't do that project um, just because, you know, it does take years to learn coding and I, I couldn't learn it in like three months to create this project mm -hmm. but uh, that's really what drove me to it teaching kids at such a young age uh, it was honestly amazing and can you tell us a few examples of things that you've built jenna oh just pretty much games so like uh for we did a girl scouts uh troop kind of uh workshop where we learned how to create a game that does like a wardrobe. So like they'll have their person and then they'll have a wardrobe where that'd be that shirt or pants and like a different color hair. You can change the colors of everything. So you can press different um, letters or arrows on the keyboard that'll change your outfit. And you can also make the character say something. And that one was actually pretty cool. Again, you've been hearing Jenna Roman here on the show, an instructor at the Coder School. Vashali, Lee, Vashali Shaw was also here with us, owner of the Coder School in Farmington, Glastonbury, and soon to be in Cheshire. Uh, great to learn about uh, this program available to kids in our state, uh, Vashali. Thank you so much, and Jenna, too, for your time today on the show.
Thank you, Thank you for having us. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. Coming up, we learn about a statewide effort led by Lieutenant Governor Susan Bicewitz and the Governor's Council on Women and Girls to expose students to STEM careers. The wider goal is to help reduce barriers for women who are underrepresented in technology, especially computer science. We'd love to hear from you. You can join us, 888-720-9677. What questions do you have? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, last school year, Lieutenant Governor Bysowitz wrapped up a computing competition for students. It's an annual program that started in 2019 and is a priority of the State Council on Women and Girls. The goal is to inspire female students to pursue STEM careers and to expand STEM education among women and girls. For more on the computing competition, joining us now on Zoom is Kristen Violet, a computer science teacher at Newtown High School who helps to lead the annual Coding for Good Computing Challenge. Kristen, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So this sounds like a great program. And tell us how you got involved. Well, once upon a time, I was an MIT um, master trainer for App Inventor, and Verizon had held a competition for the Innovative App Challenge. And so I was fortunate enough to guide some of these national winners to bring their idea to um, full design and to the market. And so that was kind of been brewing for a while, and it was inspiring enough to try and bring it to Connecticut so our students have something homegrown that they can participate in. And then from there, it just kind of started as a grassroots effort. And eventually it caught the attention of Lieutenant Governor, which we're very thankful for. Um, And she thought it aligned very well with the Council on Women's and Girls um, Education and STEAM subcommittee goals. So we took it there and it's been growing ever since. And we've just completed our third year. So briefly, tell us how the competition works. What are you looking for from students? Well, um, it's morphed over the th- uh, three years, um, but at the current um, existence, the competition, well, it's not really competition because we want to encourage all to participate at all levels. That's why we allow, um, have a three-tiered approach. So um, students and any 
high schoolers or middle school or elementary grade three through nine can participate on any level. There is a concept challenge, a prototype challenge, and a development challenge. So if you wanna just stick with ideation, you can be successful at the concept challenge. If you wanna try your hand at coding and develop part of your idea, the prototype challenge would be a good fit. And for those who wanna challenge themselves and wanna complete a fully developed program, can opt into the development challenge. So the students that are participating, are they already at schools that are that offer computer science classes or after school programs? And I'm just wondering, you know, what does that landscape look like in our state? Actually, um, the students come from all of the districts, which is great. A lot of it, of course, has to do with marketing. So we're always trying to improve that to increase participation. Um, so we do have a great representation from all districts in the state. Uh, myself as a teacher, I put it up as an assignment. So sometimes we have other schools participate a little bit more. But throughout the th uh, three years, we've had great participations with hundreds of entries each year. And whether or not they teach com um, computer science at that school, it's hard to say because Although Connecticut has a really good rate of offering computer science, I believe in high school, it's almost just slightly over 80%. Um, that's not necessarily true of the younger grades. And we are getting a lot of applicants that are in the third and fifth grade, for example. So um, students are hearing about it also through maybe their Girl Scout troops or their Boy Scout troops, because it doesn't have to be a school-related entry. So when we talk about uh, computer science classes or after-school programs, tell us about what students are learning. So are, we, are they specifically learning about coding or computer programming versus, you know, we think about computer literacy, Kristen? Um, well, in terms of after-school programs, I think it's really unique, but I know that we offer a lot of different programs in the state. There's Girls Who Code. Um, there are computer clubs. I run a computer science honor society. So I think it can really vary throughout the state. Um, but I think the real trick is just kind of keying into the student's passion. You know, so sometimes it looks like there's coding and it may be block-based coding or text-based coding, or it might just be the collaboration and the ideation and there's doing paired programming. Um, the point is to inspire wherever the student's at, to inspire them to take the next step. Mm -hmm. So while we'd love to see people become coders, it's not the right fit for everyone, but that's the beautiful thing about create, um, computer science is that it's not just about coding all the time, right? There's a, it's a very creative field, right? To understand how something functions and work so you can solve problems that are um, that you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. Important so. skills to have. Uh, when we think about um, even the access to computer science courses in high schools nationwide, uh, Ed Week reporting that um, you know that has increased access. But, you know, it can remain uneven depending on, um, you know, socioeconomic uh, uh, communities or uh, students of color. And so am I hearing you correctly, Kristen, that, you know, you're in Connecticut, that access um, is available, uh, whether someone is in an urban school versus a suburban school? Um, to the best of my knowledge, I, I believe we're fairly blessed in Connecticut with access. You know, when you look at the country at large, you know, you see um, there's the digital divide is a true story, right? There are regions of our countries that don't even have consistent internet access still. Um, so we are really um, blessed here in Connecticut, although I'm sure there are districts that um, 
obviously have less and more and that digital gap does exist in our state. If we compare ourselves to the country, it's, it's a slightly different story. Um, but I would like to see all of Connecticut schools have equal opportunity, not only for the physical technology, but also the professionals that can develop that creativity and that um, knowledge in our students and our future leaders of our state. There's a code.org study that found more than half, a little more than half of public high schools offer foundational computer science. And again, that's looking across the, the country. Uh, Kristen, you mentioned uh, that you had an, a background at MIT. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about, you know, how uh, your career path uh, uh, went in terms when we think about gender diversity, especially in tech. Well, I did start off as an English teacher uh, many moons ago at the other side of the state. And then when I shifted over to Newtown, there was an opportunity to start teaching computer science. Um, and I was pretty much self-taught because I went to school as an, to become an English teacher. So it was a uh, nice transition for me to take my time. And I, I started to get into coding and I saw the opportunity to MIT offer to train teachers. Um, and so I just looked for different opportunities like that. And it was really just kind of more self-advocacy. Um, and then eventually I'm very proud to announce that Connecticut does have an official teacher certification in computer science um, for the last couple of years. So um, I was able to secure that endorsement as well. So it's it's been a fun journey just to kind of take opportunities. There's a lot of good professional development out there for those who are interested. Um, it would be nice for our state to have a little bit more uh, professional development um, and funding for some such things as well. But for myself personally, I've been um, had great opportunities throughout my career to just self-teach and learn from others as well. It is interesting to hear your transition uh, from an English teacher to now computer science. You know, what led you to that transition? It kind of, I guess it speaks to the question I had for Vashali earlier about when we think about, you know, the types of students who sign up uh, for coding, you know, not to generalize, uh, people from different backgrounds um, can learn these skills. Yeah, I think it was my first year of teaching when I realized um, I wanted to engage my students more we were reading novels and sure they were reading and we're having discussions, but I wanted to take it to the next level. So I interacted with the computer lab teacher at Coventry High School at the time. And we started getting my kids in the lab and we started getting them to create their own books. And dare I say, this was 25 years ago. So um, I started my passion then. And then I just started doing some side jobs for Microsoft and Canon computer systems you know, on the weekend as a new teacher, having multiple jobs at the time was, you know, par for the course. So it's it's just been a, a variety of opportunities and it's great to have the diverse background because I feel that when you come from a diverse background, whether your training be in English or science or social studies or art or music, you add to, um, add to the problem solving and the creativity that computer science offers. Again, you're hearing Kristen Violet here on the show, a computer science teacher at Newtown High School who helps to lead Lieutenant Governor's Coding for Good Computing Challenge. One of your students who participated in the last school year joins us now on the phone. Julia Kamen is a Newtown High School student. She's entering her sophomore year, and she was recognized by Lieutenant Governor Bysowitz for her participation 
in the Coding for Good Challenge. Julia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. And so uh, tell us a little bit about you know how you got involved in this computing challenge and how you got interested in computer programming generally, Julia. So my dad's an optics engineer and following him, I've always seen myself going into engineering and he always told me to start learning some coding. So at the high school freshman year, I took a Python class, which Miss Violet runs, and she introduced this um, computing challenge that we all were planning to do. And I made myself a code to enter the challenge, and then I got picked for recognition for it because of how involved it was, I would say. Nice. Well, when, when I think about the theme, so it was inspiring health and wellness for all. So tell us about the app you created. So I created a program that ha- that helps people with exercising. So it based on what you input, if you're a male or a female, if you're a beginner or advanced, if you're working out from home or in the gym, there's something for each part of the body that exercises that you can do and it'll tell you how many reps you can do and how many sets you should do. And also you can input weight, which will tell you if you have more weight, you will do less reps. If you have less weight, you will do more reps to help you get healthy and exercise more. Mm, That sounds like a great app uh, that you created, uh, Julia. So you're originally interested in engineering. You've done this computing challenge. And so I'm wondering, you know, what plans you have for maybe more advanced programming uh, in the fall when school starts. So I'm taking a AP computer science course that Miss Violet actually runs. So I'm excited to learn all the different coding that Um, She has planned for us since she told me that this would be a good option so that I can learn a little bit of everything and figure out what I actually like and try to go in that sort of career path. Well, it's good to hear from you, Julia, and congratulations on your participation and being recognized by Lieutenant Governor Bysowitz. Good luck uh, when the school year starts. Thank you. Uh, Kristen Violet, I'm wondering if you can respond to what Julia shared with us. Yes, um, Julia's program was really great. And instantly when she joined my Honors Python class, it was evident that she was passionate about it and dedicated and usually ahead of the class as well. So it was well-deserved for her to be acknowledged by the Lieutenant Governor, and I'm super proud of her. And I was very excited to learn that she's joining AP Computer Science Principles because that is an amazing course for all students of all levels. Um, And it can be scaffolded and diversified for where you're at. And it offers an opportunity for students to learn a little bit about all areas of computer science. So coding will obviously be a large part of it, but there'll also be significant parts in such like cybersecurity, which is obviously a large field and ever growing and impacts everyone. Um, And also things like AI and getting down even to the ones and zeros. So I'm excited to have her in class again. You know, earlier I had asked uh, Vishali Shah about when we think about this trend for for kids uh, to learn coding and thinking about the, the career paths that they could take if they're 
interest is, you know, continues to grow. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that um, in terms of, you know, the goals of the computing challenge and, again, uh, to help um, the fact that so many women are underrepresented in these tech fields. Uh, I'm just wondering if you can talk more about that, Kristen. Well, yes, the gender gap is a, a very true story, um, but we want to make sure we encourage all students to follow their passion and a pathway that's best suited for him or her. And we want to make sure that we give those um, opportunities to explore those careers in our high school through all of our courses. Because um, computer science is a beautiful field, right? But not everyone has a passion or the skill set to be a software developer or a coder. Um, but that doesn't um, stop people from exploring and taking a foundational course in computer science. Because when you have an understanding of how things work, you're able to use it more effectively and creatively to um, address the problems and issues for your own field. So whether somebody desires to be a musician or an artist or even go into the movies, um, all of these use computer science. And also even in manufacturing, um, almost everything we purchase and have in our home has been modeled at one point prior to um, bringing to the market. So I think it's really important for all career paths to at least have one foundational course in computer science so we can understand how things work. And of course, as I mentioned before, cybersecurity is a field that impacts every person on our planet, right? Because it's important to be mindful of how to keep yourself safe and secure. And that is um, a large part of every business as well. So I think it's it's a critical field to at least, like I said, have a fundamental course. And so being part, part at a school or taking something at the coder school or something else um, is are all viable options. I like that you brought up how coding can be used by creatives like musicians, uh, Kristen. And again, when we think about access, you had said earlier that, you know, overall, when we compare Connecticut to other states, uh, you know, access, um, you know, is better. But, you know, do we oftentimes assume that kids are, you know, learning how to type or even have that stable broadband at home uh, when we think about access and, you know, learning and moving on to something like uh, coding? Um, so, yeah, I believe that we do make those assumptions here in Connecticut myself as well. Um, so I think that's important to um, keep in mind that we can't assume that all students in all districts have access at home. And I think we saw that a lot with COVID-19 when we had to shift school to the homes. So I believe that access is a lot better because of the generosity and availability of technology to make school happen during the pandemic, um, but it still exists, right? And it also exists that just because students are kind of digital natives and they have a, a phone or an iPad in their hand at a very young age, it doesn't mean that they're learning how it works or the best way to use it, how to use it responsibly, you know? So I think um, making these assumptions mm -hmm. could not be in the best interest of our students. So I believe that it's really important that in the school system, even as early as kindergarten, first grade, that we start teaching those fundamentals, whether it be about digital literacy, um, responsibility, um, and realizing that um, having a respect for the technology, right, to build resiliency and understanding at an early age. 
Again, you've been hearing Kristen Violet, a computer science teacher at Newtown High, who helps to lead the annual Lieutenant Governor's Coding for Good Computing Challenge. Kristen, a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for your time today on the show. Thank you for bringing up this important topic. Uh, interesting conversation when you think about professional development and you know, the kind of courses that school districts are offering students in the digital age. Coming up Tuesday where we live, I wanted to let our listeners know we will be talk- talking with the State Education Commissioner, Dr. Charlene Russell-Tucker, for the hour. And we look forward to taking your calls with questions for her as well. Again, that's coming up on Tuesday. Now, coming up right after a short break, Connecticut has recently invested in skilled workforce training help young people and adults gain technology jobs. What does it mean to pursue a career in computer science? We talked to the founder of a consultancy that helps workers in the digital age. And what questions do you have? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, we've been talking about the importance of helping students gain access to foundational computer science and how that relates to career opportunities in computer programming or coding. But what does considering a career in these fields really look like? And what does a worker need to actually succeed in the digital age? My next guest is the CEO and founder of Tech for Non-Techies, Sophia Matvita. Again, her found her firm is a consultancy and education company helping non-tech professionals speak tech. Sophia, welcome to the show. Hello, Lucy. I am so pleased to speak to you today. Wonderful. And our listeners can join as well with a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. My understanding, Sophia, you work with professionals who aren't in tech, but who want to use tech, helping decode coding and what it can do for them. What are the misperceptions you're encountering, even this hype around coding? Well, exactly. So the first myth that I see is that if somebody is very ambitious, they are kind of sometimes stabbing them, uh, stabbing themselves um, in the back, because what they end up doing, and actually I did the same, I did the same thing. Well, we think, okay, the, the digital revolution is happening, and I don't know anything about tech, so let me go and sign up to everything, and let me learn to code. Let me actually make all of the effort that I possibly can to learn, say, Python, that your previous guest was talking about. And the problem with that is that a not all people are actually going to be very good at Python or any kind of coding. But another problem is that even if you learn Python, it only teaches you one relatively small aspect of how a digital product like an app or an algorithm gets made. So even if you made all of that effort and you really learned Python really, really well, you are still only going to really understand only one bit. And so I remember on my podcast, I spoke to the former chief technology officer of Microsoft US, a lady called Jennifer Byrne. And she was saying that what we need to understand is digital context rather than actually getting into the getting into the depths of every single piece of code or every single skill, because frankly, that's impossible. So in my experience, it's much better and a much better use of your time to understand to get a holistic understanding of what needs to happen in order for an idea to turn into an app 
or in order for an idea to turn into an algorithm. Because once you understand the process and who needs to be involved, then you can understand, okay, maybe you want to do Python, maybe you want to be a coder, but maybe you want to be a user experience designer. That's still technology, but that's not coding. That's kind of a much more, let's say, kind of traditionally creative field than what we would associate with coding. So when professionals just dive straight into coding, that's because there's so much hype around it that they don't actually see all the other fantastic opportunities that are available. You mentioned your your podcast. It's a tech for non-techies, uh, same as you, the company uh, that you founded. More information on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And when you think about uh, the workplace and different levels of competency, when we think about um, digital skills, Sophia, can you break it down for us? Well, absolutely. So, you know, I always say that digital transformation is now everywhere. And I always say, even your coffee shop has an app. And I actually looked this up and I saw that Starbucks, which we all know and love, Starbucks gets 53% of its in-store revenue via its app. And so what does that mean for professional skills? It means that the executives, so the C-suite of a coffee company, have had to learn about AI. They've had to learn about how an app gets made. They've had to learn about what developers do because literally more than half of their install revenue now comes through digital. And so in terms of digital skills, I think that all of us need to understand how to work with developers. We all need to understand how to work with data scientists and we all need to understand how to question data. But it doesn't mean that we ourselves need to actually code the algorithms. And this is where I think many professionals go wrong. So the analogy that I think many people understand is, okay, a lot of us have had to hire a lawyer for whatever experience we're having in life. We need to understand roughly what a lawyer does so we don't end up hiring an M&A lawyer to handle a divorce. But we don't actually need to go to law school to hire a lawyer. Whereas we seem to have this attitude that, okay, in order for us to even speak to a data scientist, we need to go and do a data science course. Well, do we need to go to law school to hire a lawyer? No, that's the whole point of hiring them. Does that make sense? It does. And I wonder if you can speak more to when you think um, about the, the generational differences and then how that feeds into the digital divide, these digital skills gaps uh, that, that you have talked about, Sophia. So I think that there are various different digital skills gaps. Um, and I think lumping them all into one is where we sometimes go mm -hmm. wrong. So there's one digital skills gap, which is what you were talking about in, with your earlier caller, which is literally people do not have the money to have devices. People do not have the money to have the access to internet that many of us think that they do. And then that leads to all sorts of prolonged inequalities in our society. So that's one issue. Another aspect of the digital divide actually happens for people who are wealthy and who are powerful, but perhaps it's a generation, generation divide. So what that basically means is that somebody who doesn't have a technical background, so for example, they're a marketing executive or a lawyer or they're an accountant, they are probably 35 plus. And they assume that because they don't have a background in technology, it's basically kind of not for them. It's full of all of this jargon that they don't understand. And they assume that in order for them to even speak to a data scientist or be in the room with the chief technology officer, they really need to get into the 
into the weeds of the tech. And I see this happen, especially kind of at the C-suite level. And this is where in companies you have a, a generational divide, but also you have a seniority divide, mm. which is really terrible because the, the senior people, both in terms of age, but also in terms of their profession and you know the budgets that they control, often the people who control the budgets not only don't have the digital fluency, but also assume that they need to understand much more than they actually need to understand. The It's actually much more simpler than they probably think to learn the core skills that they need to make the best out of technologies. This speaks to something you recently wrote. Coding isn't a necessary leadership skill, but digital literacy is. So are you seeing you know, companies or certain fields are taking that to heart, Sophia, making some changes? Absolutely. And um, I can actually talk to you about a client that I just spoke to. And um, this is not a big company, but I think you, you all understand. I think we'll, we'll all understand this example. So her name is Dr. Marilyn Sander, and she is a pediatric dentist. And during lockdowns, during COVID, you know, she couldn't see her the patients um, as much as she wanted to. And so what she ended up doing is that she ended up developing an app called Good Checkup um, under my guidance. And now she, she's she been using that app essentially to get parents to take photos and videos of their children's mouths. So instead of coming in to see her, instead of coming in to see her colleagues, they could have these remote consultations. And this is an example of how somebody who's non-technical, you know, her business is still being a dentist. This is an example of a business essentially taking this opportunity and essentially thinking, okay, what technologies are available and also what do I need to learn? But even more critically, whom do I need to hire in order to get this done? And so big companies and small companies are doing this. And the reason why I wanted to give a small business example is that I don't want people to think that this is only available to you know, the likes of Constellation Brands, you know, one of the largest companies in the US or you know, big tech companies. No, Dr. Sander runs a successful, but essentially a small practice in Florida. And yet she has still been able to harness digital technologies where she has made her own app to help her own clients and then other, de other dentists have ended up picking it up and you know now it's spreading. So this kind of digital skill set is far more available because Dr. Sander is still running her practice. So clearly if she can still be a dentist and develop an app that people are using, it's probably not something, you know, it, it, you don't have to become a computer scientist in order to do this. Before we run out of time, uh, Sophia, I'm wondering if you can speak to the role of government uh, in, I had mentioned earlier that Connecticut has launched or will be investing $70 million in training for skilled technical jobs, including jobs in, in IT. You know, they're hearing from employers here that they are not able to find enough uh, skilled workers and they want to help break down barriers of employment with non-degree options. Can you respond to that approach? So I think it's a fantastic approach, but it is probably missing something. So as you were speaking with your previous guest, your previous guest was saying that not everybody has the desire or the aptitude to work as a technologist. So not everybody wants to be a computer scientist. And what I'm finding in these kinds of programs in the US and in the UK is that they are kind of very simple, blunt instruments to produce more coders. 
But what about producing people who know how to work with coders? What about producing people who know how to work with data scientists? That's a different skill set. And this is exactly what we're teaching at Tech for Non-Techies. And this is the skill set that I think basically everybody needs in the digital age. It's not necessarily coding, but it's learning to work with coders. It's understanding their jargon. Because if you only produce coders, or maybe you're producing marketers, you know, if you're producing, say, coders and lawyers, that means you are still instigating this digital divide. And I think we need more programs that are less intensive than probably a, a long-term coding course, but that are more, much more holistic because, you know, if you're learning to code, that means you're probably not learning about what user experience research is because it's impossible to do everything in one. So I think a shorter, more holistic course that more people can take and is a much lower barrier to entry is actually going to have a much higher return on investment. You've been hearing Sophia Matvita, CEO and founder of Tech for Non-Techies, also the name of her podcast, uh, her, her firm, a consultancy and education company helping non-technical professionals speak tech. Sophia, a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for your time on the show. Thank you so much, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our tech director is Kat Pastor. Coming up on Monday, we're going to hear from Emeritus State Archaeologist Dr. Nicholas Bellantoni, who takes us on a journey to learn about the many shipwrecks along Connecticut's shoreline. We learn what happened to these ships and how they're being preserved for the opportunity to explore these historic remains. We hope you join us on Monday, but we hope you have a great weekend first. <laughs>